Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 70, We're Full of Stars. Cheap Astronomy has been accused of being full of many things. But, once again, Cheap Astronomy takes the extraordinary step of producing an astronomy podcast episode about stars. No relativity, no quantum mechanics, just them there little shiny things in the sky. Although we might start with some of the more exotic little shiny things. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do different pulsar frequencies mean? A pulsar is really a neutron star, which forms after a big star goes supernova and its remnant core collapses down into a very dense object. Stars routinely spin, for example the sun spins about once every 25 days, so when the core of a really big star collapses right down to an object that's only 20 kilometres in diameter, Conservation of momentum means that object will spin really fast, like when a spinning ice skater pulls her arms in. Although a neutron star is primarily composed of neutrons, largely arising from the compressed fusion of electrons and protons, a substantial number of free charged particles still remain, which gives neutron stars powerful magnetic fields, which when spun up create electrical fields, which channel any free-charged particles up towards the poles, where they are squeezed together until they shoot out, as though from a fire hose, because the electromagnetic forces working on them overcome the neutron star's gravity. Then, through a mechanism that is not well understood, those ejected particles electrically dissociate in some way, causing a powerful emission of radio waves in line with the particle jets, and those radio transmissions are what we detect from Earth. Two radio beams come from each of the neutron star's magnetic poles, which don't precisely align with the neutron star's rotational poles, so with the right alignment, a spinning neutron star can bring that radio beam into line with Earth, once per rotation, and since neutron stars spin very fast, Generally many times a second, we detect this as rapid pulses of radio. Pulsars do eventually die. That is, there's a point where their polar jets switch off, so there's no more pulses. This is because their charged particle beams and other radiative outbursts represent a loss of mass and energy density, which will steadily reduce the pulsar's angular momentum and hence its spin. Well over 90% of all pulsars produced since the beginning of the universe have since switched off, and so are just floating around as invisible balls of compact mass, along with all the invisible non-accreting black holes that are out there. These wouldn't account for all the dark matter that we need to explain galaxy behaviours, but they do make some contribution. Anyway, it is the case that the pulse of a pulsar is partly related to its age, but there are various exceptions to that rule. Many active pulsars have occasional glitches, where they collapse further in on themselves under their tremendous self-gravity, so in collapsing to a smaller diameter, 
conservation of momentum will make them spin faster, although after that they will just start slowing down again. It's also the case that dormant neutron stars in binary or multiple star systems can be reawakened if they begin accreting mass from a neighbouring star and that mass spins them up again and reactivates the pulsar mechanism. Finally, while pulsars do primarily broadcast in the radio spectrum, there are some that broadcast in other wavelengths, all the way from radio up to X and gamma rays. Again, this is partly about age, where young neutron stars are more likely to broadcast across multiple wavelengths, like the Crab Pulsar, the remnant of a supernova that exploded in 1054. It's possible that the Crab Pulsar has the standard radio jets, but these are producing synchrotron radiation as they beam out through the dusty wind nebula that still surrounds the location of the recently exploded supernova. It's also the case that those reawakened neutron stars in binary star systems generally radiate in X-ray. And of course there are magnetars, which are generally younger and larger neutron stars of a certain configuration where not only the spin and the charge, but also the temperature seem to all work together to produce a much more powerful magnetic field than standard pulsars have. So rather than blasting out two jets of charged particles, magnetars mostly hold on to their charged particles and instead release energy through irregular blasts of X and gamma rays. The lifetime of a magnetar is relatively short. After about 10,000 years, they cease radiating X and gamma rays and may then settle down to become a normal pulsar. It's even speculated that magnetars may be a phase that pulsars shift in and out of more than once in their lives whenever they achieve that just right configuration of spin, charge and temperature. There is still a lot of pulsar physics that we just don't fully understand yet. This is the middle bit. So who doesn't like a good old neutron star story? Mount Everest in a teaspoon, glitches, centimetre-sized mountains, spin rates of hundreds of times a second, and quadrillion gauss magnetic fields. Great stuff. But okay, we did say this episode was going to be that rarest of things an astronomy podcast about stars. So here's something more old-fashioned. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How are stars named? The naming of stars goes back a long way and crosses many cultures, so it's immediately difficult to suggest that a name from one cultural background should supersede any other names. Some of the oldest names familiar to anyone with an interest in astronomy are Arabic names. Achenar, Sirius and Betelgeuse, for example. But not all those Arabic names stuck. For example, Polaris, which is just a portmanteau of Latin words for pole and star, did previously have an Arabic name, as well as Pacific Islander, Hindu and Inuit names. Not to mention also being called Alpha Ursi Minoris because it's the brightest star in the constellation Ursa Minor. So, at least for most of the English-speaking world, 
Some bright stars have Arabic names that stuck, while others may have names from different cultures, and yet others, like Alpha Centauri, fall out of the Bayer system, where the stars in a constellation are named from brightest to dimmest, as Alpha, Beta, Gamma, etc. And there's also the Flamsteed system, which was also based on constellations, but uses numbers. And rather than ordering by brightness, Flamsteed just ordered from east to west. So, for example, Deneb, an Arabic name, which is also called Alpha Cygni, from the Bayer system, is also called 50 Cygni, under the Flamsteed system. But of course, all that mostly predates telescopes. Once you move beyond naked eye astronomy, there are suddenly billions of stars that need designations. So the best thing to do is to just designate them with their position, using right ascension and declination. You may recall that right ascension is measured in time units, hours, minutes and seconds, where a full circle is 24 hours. And declination is measured in degrees, from zero on the horizon up to 90 degrees straight up. And then objects like star clusters and galaxies are generally named after the Sky Survey Catalogue they are identified in, with abbreviations like NGC for New General Catalogue, and these days we're even naming things HST after the Hubble Space Telescope. But anyway, this podcast is about naming the visible stars. And recently, since 2016, that naming process has gained a whole new level of rigour. The International Astronomical Union, who are officially tasked with naming celestial objects and their surface features, decided to turn its hand to naming the visible stars. There are now over 300 names in a list developed by the WGSN, the Working Group on Star Names. That list retains most familiar names like Altair, Barnard Star, Formal Halt, and Polaris, and Rigel, and Betelgeuse. But also the WGSN has assigned some Chinese names, like Fang and Tianwan, and it's also assigned some indigenous Australian names, like Warren and Larawag, and various other cultures get a look in too. The IAU has established a few general rules to star naming, so names can't be offensive, or about people, or about their pets, and the names can't recall historical events, political parties, or commercial interests. And who the heck are the IAU? Apparently they're a union of about 14,000 professional astronomers, they're the ones that get paid, who have meetings and working groups, and they also give out various awards to people, and of course, they name things. The IAU was established in 1919, and has just celebrated its centenary in April 2019. Between June and November 2019, the IAU has been inviting any country to name an exoplanet and its host star. For example, Australia has named the exoplanet Pollux b Festius. Well, actually we named it Leda, but when the IAU checked the books, Leda had already been used on a tiny moon of Jupiter. Leda was apparently Pollux's mum, 
and Pollux is probably best known for being one of the Gemini twins, the other being Castor. As for Leda being changed to Thestius, that's apparently allowed because she was the daughter of Thestius, and daughters can take on the feminized name of their father, at least back in those fabulously patriarchal times of Greek-Roman mythology. And who is Thestius, you ask? Well, it turns out that... Steve, astronomy. Oh, right. Well, I guess that's it then. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we do very occasionally talk about those shiny dots up in the sky that inspire such wonder amongst us and all that stuff. But it really is worth taking pause to remember we do live in a universe that's full of stars which are dazzlingly present, stunningly dynamic, and really do have their own astonishing life stories, even if they're not really alive. Of course, for those of us who are really alive, we're making a name for ourselves by burning down all the forests. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to shine brightly for a brief moment... Why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll be your candle in the dark. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.